Good morning. Open up your Bibles to James, James 4, verses 1 through 12. James 4, 1 through 12. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us, but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. God, I love this text. You've used it in my life immensely. And I love the people who I get to speak to today. I just feel like such a graced guy. And I pray that um, James 4 would be clear, Uh, whether folks are in this room, whether they're watching over a live stream because they can't be with us today or going to hear this over um, the Internet. I I pray that you will meet with us today. We we need to hear from you because our wants, desires can eclipse the beauty of what you have for us in Christ and grace. So help us, help angry people. Um, get free today, Lord. That's what I want, and I pray that you'd accomplish that today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are lots of reasons that um, I love being a pastor. There are many reasons. One of them, though, is the fact that we get to do life together. We get to kind of walk through life, and we get to laugh together, we get to cry together, get to struggle under the weight of sin together, groan together when we experience loss And we get to target particular sin issues like we're doing right now, like the subject of anger, and be honest that we struggle, realizing that we're all a mess, right? This church is filled with messy people. Uh, The key, though, is you don't get to stay a mess. You can identify, I'm a mess, but the key is you can't stay a mess. But we just continue to grow together in grace, and one of the beauties of this kind of series is that we get to deal with a very specific issue like anger. And I know God's using um, this time, along with Live 13, to really be a help to you. It's been a help to me. 
Um, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the fact that um, sometimes, actually only only once that I can recall, uh, when somebody cut me off, I wanted to go and look at the guy. Remember that illustration from a couple of weeks ago? And you know, one of the things I love about being a pastor is that people respond to that. And uh, I, I kept getting this this picture from people all throughout the course of the week. And about the tenth time, I was tired of it. So. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently Kermit the Frog and I have a similar issue, so that's, that's helpful. Yeah. About, about the fifth time I saw that, I was like, okay, enough already. But that's part of the joy of, um, of doing life together, being a church and dealing with real issues and laughing, crying, groaning, saying, God, would you help us? What's more, it makes me really grateful that we have God's word. One of our values, our, one of our core values, is the authority of God's Word. And what that means is, is that the Bible is our rule for faith and practice. Meaning, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness in this book. My, my role is just to unpack to you what God says in His Word so that you can know how to live, so that I can know how to live. And the beautiful thing about God's Word is that it reveals the problem of mankind, which the Bible defines as sin. And, and sinful anger is just another manifestation of that indwelling problem of that, that every single person uh, has, which is the, the issue of innate sinfulness. And two weeks ago we looked at the fact that anger expresses that innate sinfulness in a treasonous collision between my agenda and God's agenda. So God has a plan, I have a plan, and when those collide, that's when sinful anger happens. And I encourage you to stop, think, and seek. And then last week, uh, Pastor Andrew helped us a lot by talking about the species of anger and looking at the things that breed anger and then also what anger breeds. And we could see the, the various things that come out, the various nuances. And the last two weeks have been sort of negative, focused on the, the downside, the, the put off, if you will, of anger, making us more aware of its potential destruction and the places that anger surfaces. Today, we're going to turn from the problem and look more towards the solution. And I have great news for you today. The Bible has hope for you if you struggle with anger. It really does. The Bible not only identifies what the problem is, but also graciously tells us what we ought to do. And today, um, I want to help you to understand the hope that is available to us through God's grace and through His Word. So today, if you were to boil everything down that I'm going to say, my thesis or the big idea for today's message is essentially this from James 4. Look, don't get mad, get grace. Instead of getting mad, go for grace. Instead of going after what you want, go for what God wants, which is grace. And verses 1 to 12 in chapter 4 of James peels back the wars, the fights, the conflicts, sort of this behavioral issue, and, and gets down to the surface and points, gets down below the surface rather, and points us to the problem of our passions. And what I'm going to suggest to you today is this, that when you are tempted to be sinfully angry, that there are promises from God rooted in the gospel, rooted in grace, that you need to believe. There are things that you believe incorrectly when you get angry. There are lies that the enemy would convince you of, your flesh would persuade you of, the world would tell you this is the way you need to live. There are lies that we believe when we get sinfully angry. And and the Bible offers an eclipsing answer or another script, new promises related to how to deal with our sinful anger. So you need to know 
that anger is not just a control problem. It is a belief problem. It's not just a control problem. Anger is a belief problem. There are things that I believe when I become sinfully angry, and God's Word invites us to listen to a different voice. The voice of God's Word, the authoritative voice of His Word. So from James chapter 4, I want to show you three things that relate to dealing with this issue of anger. Here's the first one. James 4 tells us that underneath our conflicts, our wars, our fights, our anger, underneath that is the problem of unsatisfied desires. So we already talked a little bit about this two weeks ago, so I don't want to spend a ton of time here. But verses 1 to 3 identify what is underneath our sinful emotions of anger. Look at verse 1. James says, What causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? And then he deals with it. If Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So the first thing he tells us is that our quarrels come from somewhere, and they come from passions, things that we desire. He says, you desire and you do not have, do not have so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So there's a couple things that the text tells us. It tells us that underneath our wars and our fights are these passions and that problems in life come or sinful anger or conflicts emerge when our desires are frustrated. And then finally, James even tells us that even our motives with which we pray and seek God are fundamentally flawed. We want what we want. We want it so badly, we'll even talk to God about getting it. And the real issue is the fact that we want what we want. We'll use anything, anger, and even use God to get what we want. So, as human beings, we are fundamentally self-centered. And our selfishness shows its ugliness in our pursuit to get what we want. Now, up here today are two buckets. And... The first bucket that I want to introduce you today is what we'll call the wants and desires bucket. In this bucket are lots of good things, things that God intended to be great things in our lives, things that in many respects are not fundamentally sinful. But the problem is, is that we want them so badly and we want them on our agenda and our time frame. We want them so badly that when our desires are hindered, when our wants and desires aren't fulfilled like we expect them to be, we use sinful anger to be able to get what we want. If people get in our way or if circumstances challenge us, we we blow through them in order to be able to grab hold of what is inside this wants, desires, and if you will, needs bucket. The reality is when we talk about anger, this is where it comes from. James says there are things inside this bucket that we want so badly that we'll do just about anything. We'll manipulate people. We'll manipulate emotions. We'll even try to manipulate God just so that we can have what we want out of this bucket. So James 4 helps us in that it identifies these underlying desires. You see, lurking underneath somewhere in your life and mine are these self-centered assumptions about life we have expectations as to how we should be treated we we know how things should work out in our lives we have assumptions about how challenging life is going to be and then when it turns out to be more challenging it's hard or we we think that we should be treated fairly and And while those things may not be fundamentally sinful the tension comes when they become ultimate 
when you end up defining the rules and the laws as to how you think life should go. The problem is when good things, good desires, become God things, when they become ultimate. And that is why James talks very directly about that kind of living, that sort of self-centered agenda living. He, he calls it spiritual adultery. He calls it friendship with the world. He calls it something that evokes the righteous jealousy of God. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? See, what happens is that the world lives for wants and desires. And everything in our culture is designed to really tell you, this is ultimate. This is what you need to live for. You want this. You want what you want. And you have a right to it. And you need to find a way to be able to get it. You want to be happy, don't you? In the midst of this kind of world bent towards wants and desires, the Bible speaks in a different way. See, the challenge is, is that if you live this way, you will try and create your own little kingdom where you write the laws, you write the rules, you define the way that life should be. And then if anyone steps out of bounds from those rules, oh man, they, they're going to pay. They may pay by you blowing up. They may pay by you clamming up. But the fact of the matter is, is our passion for what we want, our passion for our desires, that's where sinful anger comes from. My favorite illustration of this comes from Paul Tripp. In his, uh, he wrote a chapter in a book called The War of Words. Here's what he says. You'll relate to this if you've ever had children in your home. Let me take you to an all-too-familiar family scene. It is 10.30 at night, and the children you put to bed at 9 are now fighting in their beds. Can I get a witness? <laughs> Amen. You start down the hallway, feet heavy on the floorboards, and you're probably not saying, Thank you, Jesus, for this wonderful opportunity, part of the work of your kingdom. I, I so love redemption. I love this opportunity to be part of what you are doing. No. Instead, you are probably saying, they're dead. <laughs> and you burst into your children's room and say, do you know what my day has been like? Do you have any idea what I do? I don't ask for much, just children who are from earth. I, I bought every shred of clothes you put on that back of yours. I bought every morsel of food you put in that big mouth of yours. I made your Christmases happy. <laughs> and as you are ranting, do you think your children are saying, my, this is helpful. Here is a person of distinct wisdom. I, I'm so glad that he came into my room. I, I, I think I'm seeing now my own heart. No, 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 no. Your children gain little from this encounter and cannot wait until you leave their room. Now let's examine the emotion that is propelling you at that moment. You are not angry because your children have broken the laws of God's kingdom. If you were, that righteous anger would go in a very different direction. It would be the anger of grace the anger of wisdom, the anger of instruction, and the anger of correction. No, you're angry because your children have broken the laws of your kingdom, and in your kingdom there shall be no parenting after 10 o'clock p.m. <laughs> right? We know that, that that's a little too close to home. We want what we want what we want, and that is, I don't want to parent after 10 o'clock p.m. I just want to sit down, have not be any noise. I want it to be quiet. I don't want to go back upstairs and put kids in bed. This is what I want. This is what I want. This is what I want. And that's what happens. 
is our wants, misplaced and unfulfilled desires, create sinful anger. So that's the problem. The problem is unfulfilled desires. That's the issue. Now, what is the solution? Well, beautifully, James chapter 4 tells us that what we actually need is more grace. Look at verse 6. How do we deal with unfulfilled desires? Verse 6 has the answer. It says, but he gives more grace. Five very important words. This verse may need to be underlined in your Bible. It may even need a hashtag, get more grace. That's what it needs to be. Something of that sort. You need to remember that there is more grace available. God has grace ready for you. Now, what do I mean by grace? The problem with that word, it's so familiar, but let me just define it in case you're either not familiar with the word or maybe worse, you're so familiar with it, you really don't know what it means. Grace, simply stated, is unmerited favor. In the Bible, it is the root of the good news. The good news that Jesus comes into the world at the decree of God, dies on the cross in order that the Father can take the death of Jesus and apply it to sinful human beings who do not deserve it. Grace is unmerited favor that God treats me in a way that I fundamentally don't deserve. He loves me and forgives me and cleanses me in Christ all because he's God. It is unmerited favor. God's kindness, God's mercy, his love, they're all grace. See, one of the things that I want a few of you to think through, because some of you are here and you don't consider yourselves a Christian or you're trying to figure out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is that if you've never tasted the grace of what it means to be forgiven in Christ, then you have no ability to really even deal with issues like anger. You know what's crazy? It's actually possible that God could use a, a message on anger to uncover the fact that you are powerless to really deal with this issue because at the end of the day, you're still trying to do life on your own. You're still trying to attack the wants, needs, and desires in your life, and you're trying to do it over and over and over, but you've got no power, you've got no ability to defeat that because you're still trying to live according to your agenda. And when you come to faith in Christ, you in effect say, God, I'm done with me. I can't deal with this on my own. I need you to help me. And the Bible says that Jesus comes, he saves you from your sin, he empowers your life, and you are graced. You receive unmerited favor. But it doesn't stop in that initial decision to receive Christ. It continues on throughout the rest of your life. You see, grace doesn't just mean unmerited favor. It also means unmerited provision. Now, now you get this. Even if, again, if you're not religious, you get this. When, you, when people pray at a meal and they, they pray over it, sometimes someone will say it like this. Would you please say what? Grace. Why do we say that? Well, because what, what we're saying is that meal is a unmerited provision. God has provided that to us. And, and what grace is, is not only unmerited favor, but it's also the ability to please God, the ability to be empowered by God. It means that throughout your life, after you receive Christ, that God is ready to pour out grace upon you over and over and over. So it's not that you just receive Christ, uh, receive grace rather once when you receive Christ, but now throughout the rest of your life, you're receiving grace, 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 grace. There's an initial start of grace, and then for the rest of your life, you, you live on grace all the time. Let me give you a few examples of this. Six of them in the Bible. 
when, when Paul was struggling with some sort of um, infirmity, and it could have been physical, it might have been a, a person in his life, he called it a thorn in the flesh. He asked God to deliver him from that difficulty, and God's reply, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.9, was this, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, when Paul wants his life to be different, and it isn't, and when he asks God, will you remove this, God, in effect, says to Paul, there's something bigger in play here than just removing the difficulty. My grace is bigger than your challenge. So there's grace that you can live on. Second example. When you give money away and it creates a gap between feeling secure and then feeling insecure. So giving, give money away, and that's less of what you have in order to take care of yourself. And when that gap creates feelings of insecurity, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 9 eight, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So God is able to fill in the gap between what you think you need and what you have with his grace. You're able to live on his grace. Third, when Paul looked at his life and he saw his spiritual growth, he attributed it to the grace of God. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. So Paul sees that as he's being changed and being transformed, he knows that there's something going on inside of him that's not him. He knows that there's a power, there's a grace, an unmerited provision. Fifth, when it comes to prayer, the writer of Hebrews encourages us to seek God's help, and in describing that help, he calls that divine assistance grace. Right of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we're stuck. We don't know what to do. We cry out to God. We come to the throne of grace and he provides grace to us to help us in our time of need. And finally, when Peter challenges believers to grow spiritually, as he describes that spiritual growth, he calls them to grow in grace. 2 Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. What is Paul saying there? He's saying that as he grows in spiritual maturity, that he's to grow in his understanding of grace. That the more he grows up, the more grace he will know that he needs. He'll, he'll realize more and more, I need God's help, I need God's help. So, so spiritual maturity doesn't look like physical maturity. Physical maturity looks like as you get older, you get less dependent. But spiritual maturity looks the reverse. As you grow and become more mature, you become more dependent. You need more grace. You know, over my lifetime, there have been few moments, a few moments when I've been reading a book and God in that book has so powerfully met me that it almost feels like lightning is struck. I'm reading the passage, a paragraph, and it's just like a whole new world has opened to me. And about 10 years or so ago on vacation, I was reading a great book by Dallas Willard called The Renovation of the Heart. And there were three sentences in that book, and and I'm telling you, my life changed my, my, the orientation of how I saw life was altered instantly when I read this. It was like, like heaven opened 
And God just spoke to me. Here's a cutting from that book. Here's what he said. To grow in grace means to utilize more and more grace to live by until everything we do is assisted by grace. The greatest saints are not those who need less grace, but those who consume the most grace. Who indeed are most in need of grace. Those who are saturated by grace in every dimension of their being. And this is the sentence that just gripped me. Grace to them is like breath. What he means is that the godly are those who consume grace. They they live on it. They breathe it. It it is so important to them. They they, they know that without God's help, they can't do anything. And so they are consumed with the meritless divine provision every day of God's grace. So how does that relate to James 4 in anger? Well, here's how. James says this. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So there's a pathway to get grace, and that pathway is humility. The idea is that God has a reservoir of grace available. The text says, but He gives more grace, but He doesn't give it to those who are too proud to ask it of him. He doesn't give grace to those who are so proud that they think that they need to have what they want and that their rights, their needs, their desires are ultimate and they keep pursuing it over and over and over. God shuts off the reserve of grace and gives you in effect what you want, which is your needs, your desires and your um passions in life and those things never fulfill. So here's the problem there are some of you I can imagine that you have spent your lifetime pursuing what you want and you are here today and you are absolutely exhausted. You're so tired. You've destroyed relationships. You've been angry. You are full of anxiety. You, you shut people off. You blow up. You see all these things and you've been running and running and running and running and trying and trying and trying. And the fact of the matter is your sinful anger, your misplaced desires, your unfulfilled wants, it's, it's killing you. There's a great scene in the movie, The Help, story of um, down in the South, 1950s, 60s, just the embedded racism that was still a part of that culture. One of my favorite scenes in that movie is when Hilly Holbrook, who is sort of the antagonist in the movie, known as just being very racist, at the end of the movie she tries to punish Abilene Clark, the African-American help, accusing her of stealing silver when they both know she hasn't done it. But just to accuse her would have been enough. At the end of the movie, Abilene Clark courageously gets in the grill of Hilly Holbrook and she says to her, all you do is stare and lie to get what you want. You a godless woman, Hilly. And then she says this, aren't you tired, Miss Hilly? Aren't you tired? That is what misplaced desires do. They make you tired. And the reason is, is because you're pursuing what you want and what you want and what you want and what you want. And there is no divine enablement to be able, there's no God-given power to be able to live the way that God has intended for you to live. And the tiredness that you feel, listen to me, is a sign of God's judgment, mercifully, to show you that you're on the wrong path. Grace to the godly is like breath. 
The other way that this relates to James chapter 4, in the way it connects to anger, is that there's this reservoir of grace available to us, and we could get grace that's available to us, but instead we want what we want. And so the other bucket besides want, needs, and desires is this whole idea of God's grace, and there's this, this beautiful reservoir of God's grace available to us. And the question that we all have to ask ourselves when our desires and our wants are frustrated is this, what do I want more? Do I want my desires or do I want God's grace? The Bible says He gives more grace. It's ready. It's available to you. He's ready to pour out grace to you. But it doesn't come to those who are arrogant and say, No, I want what I want. And I don't care what it takes to get it. And I'll even take it to you, God, and tell you, You better give me what I want or I'm going to be mad at you for the rest of my life. That, James says, is spiritual adultery. It is resisting God's hand. It is where God looks at your life and jealously says, Won't you come back to grace So there's two choices in life, whether you're going to go after all that you want and desire, or whether you're going to say, you know what, there's actually something more valuable in life, which is God's grace. And fundamental to what it means to be a follower of Jesus are people who have said, God has grace ready and available for me for everything that I face and what I want more than anything in life. Anything in life is that grace. So the question is, will I be mad or will I get grace? Will I humbly seek God's help or will I demand my own way? Will I be enraged or frustrated or embittered because my agenda is hindered? Or will I breathe the grace of God that is available to me? Grace to the godly is like breath. We have to live and breathe God's grace. So I remember sharing this with my wife. We were on vacation somewhere, I think in northern Michigan, our, our kids were little. We only had the twins at the time. They were, I think, two years old. They were at that age when you could no longer put them, you know, in, in the, the, the car seats that faced backwards, but now they were just in those car seats that faced forward. And, and if you're a new parent and you've never faced this moment, I got news for you. You are going to have a battle. And let me describe this battle for you. For some reason, when those kids go in that car seat, they think game on. Right? It, it is time to exert my authority via my back and my hips. And as you go to put those kids in the car seat, you watch. They jut their hips out, stick their back up, and they are trying to help you not be able to click it. Right? And I am telling you, there were so many times when we would put those little boys in those car seats, it, almost like on, like they looked at each other. One, two, three. You know, they, they, get, they do it together. I'm, I, I felt like it. They were teaming up on us. And, and so there were times I'd take their little hips and I'd pin them right in that car seat. I'm mean, like, you stay put. And I'd like, yeah. And I'd walk away. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm battling with my kids over car seats, right? It's was, it was just so, you know what I'm talking about? All right, all right, good, good. All right, just want to be sure I'm not the only messed up person in this room. So... So I shared this truth with my wife and um, about this breathing grace thing. And we were getting the kids ready to go out for pizza or something like that. She got them in the car seats, and sure enough, they arched their backs, stuck their little hips out, tried to not let her click it and stick it so we could go. And uh, as they were wrestling with her, I heard her under her breath saying, Grace, 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 grace. What is she doing in that moment? What she's doing is she is praying She's pleading, 
And she's renewing her mind, believing that, God, there is grace available to click this car seat without getting angry. There is grace. You, God, you have grace available for moments just like this. And so she's, she's breathing grace. You can help me. You can help me. And do you think God cares about how you click your kids in the car seat? Absolutely he does. And he has grace available to you for moments like that. Grace to the godly is like breath. She was putting into practice what James 4 talks about. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. That's what she was doing. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will exalt you. The heart of anger says, I can't do this. The heart of anger says, I want what I want. And I will get it. I will get kids who will sit in their car seats and not arch their backs. Or you could say, God, grace. Give me grace. So the question that we have to wrestle through every day and today is this. Are you living for your wants, your needs, or your desires? Have they become ultimate? Or is it possible that God today through his word in James chapter 4 is reminding you that I have all kinds of grace available to you, but you've got to let go of your claim to this bucket. You've got to let go of your agenda, your wants, your desires, your expectation, your little kingdom. It's got to go because at the end of the day, my grace is so much better than everything that's over here. So James chapter 4 helps us to understand what the problem is, also what we need in terms of grace. And then finally, James helps us to see that the solution is, there's some things here we need to believe. So he calls those who live for their own wants spiritual adulterers. Why would he use such strong language? He does so because sinful anger is the malfunction of a soul where we believe the wrong things. When you get sinfully angry, when I get sinfully angry, there are things that we have come to believe. There are things that, that a script, so to speak, that we are embracing. In, in contrast to that is the eclipsing power of God's word, which gives us new things to believe. Let me give you six things to believe, truths, that you need to embrace. All of these may not relate to every circumstance that you face, but I bet a few of them will. One of the most helpful things, first and foremost, <clears throat> first and foremost for me, is to remember that God knows what I need. This is embracing God's sovereignty, meaning that He has a plan for the universe and I'm not the center of it. Sinful anger comes from a heart that believes that what I want is just what I want, and I'm going to do just about anything to get it. The first truth is the simple fact that God is sovereign over everything in life, meaning that God has a plan for all events, and He's in control, and I'm not. That's why some of us get really angry, is because you want to be in control, and when things don't go your way, you're trying to gain control again. But it also means that God has a plan for my life and nothing falls outside of that plan. In other words, when annoying or difficult circumstances come, I have found myself often saying this, God, apparently you think I need this today. Apparently you think I need this person in my life. Apparently you think I need this circumstance in my life. Some of you as parents, you found yourself to be angry, raising kids. Guess what? God knew the kind of child that you would need. 
He's got bigger plans for your life than just you living the American dream and having kids like, you know, leave it to Beaver or something like that, right? The reality is that God has plans for our lives and he gets to set the agenda. We don't. So Jonathan Edwards, you know, huge theologian, big heart, big mind for God. One of his 70 resolutions that he wrote was never to get angry at inanimate objects. (laughs) Why? Because he believed that God sovereignly was in control of all events, even the things that he tripped over or bumped his knee on or stubbed his toe on. Apparently, God, you know what I need Here's the second commitment, and that's this, that you operate from a vantage point of, I have a lot to learn. Listen to me, anger does not thrive in a culture of humility. Humble people don't make assumptions about how they should be treated or hold people emotionally hostage to their expectations. Humble people realize that they have been graced with so many things. They have relinquished their rights. They have relinquished their demands. Oh, sure, they have desires. They have wants. But they're not ultimate because they know ultimately that these things are things that they don't, they aren't owed. Arrogant people, proud people think, no, no, this is the way life's got to be. This is how it is for me. I have to have this in order for me to be happy. Humble people look at life through a different lens. Unteachable people, proud people, are often angry people. And so therefore you could see a circumstance in life and just realize, God, I, I, apparently I have a lot to learn and apparently you know what I need. Third, the reality is, is that God can use this in my life. You see, difficult and frustrating circumstances, they, they, they surface areas of growth and areas of immaturity. I've described our lives before like this. We're like like beakers with clear solutions in them with sediment at the bottom. And when life is easy and calm, then the sediment settles down. And man, your life looks really clear, doesn't it? It looks so godly and righteous. And that's that's not the way that life always is. And God designs it that way. And God comes along in your little beaker that looks all clear and crystal and clean. And he bumps it. And your beaker gets bumped, and suddenly now all the sediment rises to the surface, and then you get to see the way that you really are. And God is an expert in bumping our beaker so that we can see what kind of people we are, so that then we can deal with it. Hebrews 12 tells us that difficulties provide an opportunity for the loving discipline of God. And God allows those circumstances into our life in order so that He can help us to become the people that he wants us to be and we need to embrace that and say god i got a lot to work on i got a lot of ways that i need to grow and so here's an opportunity for me to embrace difficulty and be able to say yes i want to be like your son here it comes bring it on first corinthians eleven nineteen tells us that difficulties and even divisions are opportunities to prove who's really mature So challenges that come, things that could have made you really angry, things that could have hindered you from what you want and desire, those barriers that are there in place, suddenly now is an opportunity to prove, are you real or are you not? Because listen to me, if grace doesn't work when it comes to how you deal with anger, then are you even real in the first place? If you can't have God help you by the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit to deal with things like just your expectations and your wants, then the question is, is it really working at all? That's why anger is on the list of things that don't fit with the kingdom of Christ. 
God could really use this in my life. It provides an opportunity to demonstrate that I really love grace more than simply getting what I want. Here's another one. This is very, very common and important. There Often I hear from people, this is impossible. I can't handle this. And the truth you need to remind yourself is the Bible says, no, 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 this is not impossible. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see, part of the challenge is that we can become overwhelmed with circumstances and we can feel in that overwhelmed state like we are justified in our sinful and angry responses i can't handle this anymore i can't take this and so boom or we say i can't handle you and so we clam up and we walk away meanwhile what in effect we are saying is i don't have enough grace to deal with you so i'm going to close up and walk away which is just as sinful as blowing up You walk away from a conversation, you shut people off, you close them down, the whole passive-aggressive thing. What in effect you're saying is this, I don't have grace to deal with this, and that is fundamentally not true. The enemy, your flesh, and the world would have you believe that God has put you in a position that is impossible for you to bear, and the Bible says that is fundamentally not true. This is not impossible, and therefore, this is something that you simply need to believe. I'm not saying it's not hard. I know it's hard. But it's not impossible. Next, the Bible tells us that there is grace available. So when we are confronted with the gap between what we want and what we actually have, we need to turn toward grace, the grace that is available to us. So you want what you want, you got your desires, they're hindered. At that moment, you got to make a decision. And am I going to press on and use sinful anger so I can grab what I want? Or am I going to say, you know what, there's something more valuable here than what I want, something available to me. There is God's grace that is available, and that's what I'm going to believe, that there is grace that's available for me for everything that I face. Again, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says that God gives us sufficient grace for everything that we face. All sufficiency in all things at all times. I know this takes great faith to believe. It takes faith to believe that God's grace is sufficient. It takes faith to believe that God can give you what you need when you feel like you don't have what you want. It takes faith to believe when you're really mad or when you're really frustrated or when you're really hurt that there is spiritual power available to you that can trump those strong emotions of anger. It takes faith to believe that God can help you. It takes faith to believe that so you don't blow up or clam up or say hurtful or sinful things. There's grace available. Here's the last one. And I love this. The Bible tells us that God is ready to help us. It puts God in this position that He is ready and willing to help us if we will seek Him and ask. Hebrews 4, again, says that God invites us to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may find grace to help in time of need. See, that's the problem. Some of you, as you are pursuing your wants, needs, and desires, those get hindered, and immediately you think, I can't do this, this is impossible. You just give up, you quit, and you get mad, embittered, angry. You have some sort of emotional response response instead of realizing that God has grace available to you and all of this is part of a plan for you to realize I can't do this on my own God I need your help and so 
The writer of Hebrews says, come boldly to the throne of grace. That's what my wife is doing. She's saying, grace, grace, grace. She's asking for grace. She's praying, reminding herself, grace, grace, grace. A sinfully angry person just wants to be mad. They don't want grace. They just want what they want. So do you see how much faith it takes to conquer sinful anger? There are so many lies that we quickly believe in our frustration and in our bitterness. And yet, in the midst of all those things that we tend to believe wrongly, there are eclipsing truths in the Bible that when we're mad, we can be reminded that God has grace available to us. So the call from James chapter 4 is don't get mad, don't get great. Don't get mad, get grace. So the question you have to wrestle with today, and the question you have to wrestle with really for the rest of your life is, when you look at these two buckets, which one do you really want? And the hope from James chapter 4 is that today you would say, God, although these desires and wants that I have are strong, and many of them aren't bad, but they can become ultimate. And today, by your grace, you helping me, I'm going to say, God, you know what? I need more than simply my wants, I want to say to you that your grace is ultimately the thing that I need more than anything else in life. For you to be able to say, God, this, this, is, this is the bucket that I live for. And however my wants and needs and desires fit within your grace, then I'll bring them on. But at the end of the day, what I want more than anything else is you. I want your grace. I want your empowerment. I want your mercy to be upon me. And so would you help me, God, not to be mad, but instead to get grace. Aren't you tired? Some of you are so tired. And it's time for you to put away the wants, needs, and desires and say, God, I need your grace. Lord Jesus, this grace thing that we talk about today is so practical and real. It, it, it'll relate for some people um, in, in just a few moments. We're going to have to practice it. And... There's grace for all sorts of things that we face. And yet, somehow, we, we tend to believe that we're the exception to that. And so would you help us today, by your Spirit, to turn from the things that we really want and desire that have become so ultimate. Lord, I pray for a few folks here, no doubt, who are tired and weary because they're trying to deal with this issue and they can't really because they've never settled the issue about their relationship with you. And I pray that today would be a day when they, even while talking about anger, realize, you know what, I need, I, need, I need Christ. That's what I need. I need Jesus to come into my heart and fix this broken heart. Right? Lord, I pray that today might be that day for some folks. And then, Lord, for people who have tasted of your grace, oh, that we could live on your grace every day. There's hard stuff that comes at us in life. And so thank you that you can give us grace for everything that we face. We don't want to get mad anymore, Lord. We just want you to give us grace. And so we're going to believe that in faith today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the fastest ways you can sever the root of unbelief when it comes to anger is by acknowledging it with your mouth and having someone pray over you.
So if um, you're in that condition today, would love to just take a big step forward. There'll be some folks up here afterwards who'd love to pray over you. Or if there's anything else going on in your life, we want to pour God's grace on you. This is a, a facility of grace. And so they're here to bless you and help you today, okay? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming. Hope to see you tonight.